Auckland Council Libraries present We Read Auckland. Kapanui Tato Itamaki Makoto. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah, standing there behind. And welcome to this Books and Beyond We Read Auckland special. Kapanui Tato Itamaki Makoto. This is your host, Alison. And I'm joined on this Zoom call by the award-winning podcaster and writer, Dr. Emma Espiner. Ngāti tukurehe, ngāti parau. Kia ora and welcome, Emma. Kia ora. It's lovely to have you here. Emma has recently released her memoir called There's a Cure for This. It's published by Penguin Random House. And in the memoir, Emma writes, I graduated as a doctor in 2020 and arrived into the COVID-19 pandemic with my tamoko on my arm, my hospital lanyard, my stethoscope, and a purpose. I don't know why medicine felt like coming home. I had no right to have that experience, but for some reason, it fits. So firstly, Emma, congratulations on the book. It's not only striking and profound, but I found it exquisite. So my question to you is, what made you decide to write this book? Thank you, and Kelda Allison. Yeah, I mean, I guess a sense of masochism, mm. first of all. You know, I don't have any spare time. I thought I'd just fill up the time <laughs> that I had left um, writing a book. No, I, I mean, in all seriousness, it was a, a really profound time in my life. I was pregnant with my daughter, Nico, when I decided to retrain and then the process of becoming a doctor, it's a lot. And I just had the sense, particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic, that these were extraordinary times. And it was a period of transformation that if I didn't capture it kind of as it was now, it would be at risk of being forgotten as the job became routine. Because that's the thing about working in medicine is that anything can become normal. You'll, you'll be at a dinner party with non-medical people and you start telling about the, your day and it just sort of looks of horror as you realise that actually you haven't reset <laughs> for normal person chat and the things that you do day to day are extraordinary. So that was the impetus, I guess. Um, and I had been writing for a while. So um, I started publishing while I was at medical school and that was mostly, you know, essay style writing, often with a political angle. And it felt like a really good opportunity to expand on that and do some more you know, some longer form pieces and try and pull together something in a book form rather than just a series of essays. But of course, as any memoirist knows, once you start unpicking, you know, your recent memories, you get flung back to the beginning. And so, you know, there was a lot of thinking about, you know, my very early life and our family stories as well. If I had to describe it to people, it would be, this is the end of the beginning. The book really marks that turning point. Mm. I'll come back to Fano and family later, but I wanted to make the comment though: what a time to graduate as a doctor, uh, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And I just wonder what that was like. Well, like it's one of those strange things. I mean, we didn't know any different, mm. and so for us, this was just how it was. And. The difference between, I guess, catastrophizing that you saw in the media and the very real morbidity and mortality of doctors and health professionals working overseas, because we acted so quickly here and had a government that took it seriously, it was quite surreal having that juxtaposition. But I guess the most notable thing for us was the fatigue of our colleagues. So we might have been fresh and coming into the system as, as it was, but for people that were already probably teetering on the cusp of burnout, given what we know about our under-resourced health system, even at baseline, that was the thing I think that's had, that had the most profound impact on me, was seeing my, you know, my seniors 
struggling and concerned and and then post-COVID that's been worse, you know, so some of the things I think that is, is less well recognised at the moment and will become apparent in the next year or so is that you have a cohort of junior doctors who came through as you said, through the pandemic, but there are a lot of life experiences that were delayed because mm. of that. So in my own hospital, we're a significant number of uh, registrars short in our department uh, in the second half of this year because lots of people are leaving to either work overseas or travel and have those life experiences that they were unable to have earlier. And that's not just limited to our department or our hospital, that's across the board. So that's just one aspect of the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then there's all the other stuff around wait lists and, you know, delayed care. You know, it's a whole lot and it'll take us a long time to recover Mm. from. It's possibly going to take like a generation when you have a a shift like this. Mm. Now, Emma, in your early working days, so I'm sort of talking pre-medicine and and pre-motherhood, life was comfortable possibly even kind of Instagrammable. And then, (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it probably still is at times, but then it's like you almost came to a sliding door moment or, you know, that fork in the road moment. Mm. What was it that made you walk down that path to to med school and and beyond? As you say, you were 30 and you were pregnant with your daughter. and yeah. Maybe it was just going mad from the pregnancy hormones, I don't know, Um, (laughs) and it's too late to retrain in anything else now. But um, no, in all seriousness, I I do find that fascinating, and that's why I love talking to other people who are looking to retrain or thinking about doing something differently, because it's when life is comfortable, especially when you've come from a life that hasn't been, the risk of challenging that and doing something absurd, it's not something that many people do. Probably a less... um, striking change like another crossroads in my career was um, when I was working at parliament I was working for Darren Hughes who was the chief whip of the Labour Party at that time and absolutely loved it you know the intrigue the social life you know in the halls of power that kind of thing but I'd had an offer to go back and work in recruitment with um, an old mentor of mine who'd been my teacher at Intermediate but at the same time there was an opportunity to go and work for uh, the late Parikura Horomia and that would have been a path into a political career, probably, and looking in mm. retrospect, because as his assistant, you travel a lot around the Māori electorates. And, and I'm not, this is not to blow smoke up my own ass mm. or anything, but any half capable Māori who's in that position would be supported to do something with that if you were, you know, present in that, in that realm. So I often think about that because I kind of circled back to politics when I started doing political commentary and thinking, that could have been a different path, mm. but um, but I didn't choose that. And I think now I would hate to be a politician, so I'm grateful. <laughs> but the medicine thing was fascinating. So um, I actually spoke with Dale Husband from Radio Watia this morning, and he was saying, you know, why why was why was the um, the journey to becoming a doctor so bound up with returning to your roots and and becoming reconnected with your whakapapa? And that that was that was actually a part of my reason for retraining so I was so so pregnant and grumpy mm. I, I hadn't ever really settled into the careers that I'd had so I had always thought I would do something else but there was a real comfort in thinking I would do something else but not ever committing to that and so it would be like well this I don't love this career but it's not for me forever so I'll just you know kind of I'm sort of slumming it here for a while but as I approached 30 I thought well there's not going to be that many opportunities to retrain at this point and I think the thing about having some maternity leave is is if you're resourced enough to take that time, then it is a really good time to to reset and assess your priorities. And the thing I realise in hindsight now, working and and being, you know, pretty dedicated to the Māori doctors community that we have is that 
throughout my career, I was the only brown person in any room. And so I give myself grief sometimes for drifting so far from my roots. But I think that in, that actually there was no one around me, really. I mean, there's a handful, but no critical mass to, to think. And there was no really acceptance or recognition that what you bring as a Māori woman into any environment had any value at all, you know. So it wasn't until I got to medicine, came through the Māori Pacific Admission Scheme and connected up with this incredible whānau that I thought, oh, well, this, this is where I'm meant to be. Oh, wonderful. And I'm just sort of thinking, thank God you you did. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, if we head back a little bit to when you were growing up, I loved your descriptions about your mum's house. Um, you described it as the, the purple lesbian state house. And it was a place of refuge and safety and, and possibility for your, your queer friends. But for you, it was probably like any normal teenager. It was something to rebel against. But you, you do talk with such love about your mum, Colleen, and, and she's always been such a, a huge supporter of yours, hasn't she? Yeah, I've been incredibly lucky. And, you know, my other, so so mum's partner, Mandy, who I grew up with, and my father have been more variable parent figures. But mum is, yeah, she's been incredibly consistent. And we live together now, which I love and have wanted to do for a long time. And I apologise all, all the time for the grief I gave her as a teenager. And actually, she was my plus one to the Auckland Writers Festival this year. And it's the first time I've taken her and the really cool thing was that so many people had read the book and immediately grasped that she was the hero of the story. And to see mm. her have that recognition after everything that she's done for me was really um, was really special to be able to give her that. But, you know, like any strong-willed teenage girl, uh, everything that she did when I was growing up annoyed me. Um, and so and that was, that was a resistance. But also there's that um, kind of societal thing as well that I was, you know, really unsure how to navigate her sexuality in the setting yeah. of, a, you know, a society that was not, you know, it was still very much a heterosexual family. No one, you know, not very many people were divorced in, in our friend group, let alone, you know, with a living lover, which is, and it's really funny how much things have changed because I've got so many friends now who are really envious of that upbringing. They're like, oh, I wish I'd had lesbian mothers and that, you know, my mums had thrown me a period party and kind of all that sort of stuff. It's really, yeah. Yeah, it's validating for her. And I kind of, you know, just have to accept that I was a shitty teenager and probably could have <laughs> behaved a bit better. Oh dear, no, it sounds, it sounds pretty normal to me. And you write so lovingly of all of your family. But I, I was really fascinated by the stories of both your grandmothers. So you had Nanny Kura and Nanny Ethel. And they, it's interesting, they're both devout Catholics and both really strong sort of matriarchal figures. And they really respected and valued each other, didn't they? Yeah, that was really interesting. I mean, the, the nature of my parents' separation and how the families remained in touch was always really interesting to me. So, you know, you would think that a, a a woman leaving a man for another woman and two very Catholic families and all the, the consequences you can imagine coming out of that. But for my dad's side of the family, so um, Nanny and, and Koro were always very clear that mum would always be respected because she was my mother. And so she was, She would. they probably visited her more than they visited my dad. And for his part, dad never, I never saw the the pain that he must have gone through during that that period. He never, mm. you know, um, for all his faults, he never made that my problem. And their Catholic faith, I think, I mean, I have personally have a lot of problems with institutionalised religion, but, um, and, you know, mm. a, a lot of that comes from what the consequences of that and, and how 
my grandmother, so Ethel, treated mum when she came out as a lesbian because she, yeah, I mean, she didn't, didn't talk to her for years and never really stopped hoping that she'd marry a nice farmer. Um, and that, you know, that when I think about my own relationship with my mum and and we all loved Nana so much, that must have been incredibly hurtful for mum. And even and it's funny with parents, like even if you understand where they're coming from, you know, if you can if you can logic your way through it and say, well, they do this because of this, it's still really hurtful because you're always their child you know but for them you know both Nana and Nanny had incredible tragedy that they've lived through and struggles in their life and I think you know if the faith was what sustained them and you know kept them going then that is what it is yeah but the the funny the funny thing about Nanny was that she so my kōro was meant to be ordained as a priest. A priest, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I think he must have been in whatever college it is you attend to become a priest. Um, and nanny, nanny was raised Anglican. And so not only did she tempt him away from that life, but she was also not the right religion. But then in a, a very kind of a woman style, she converted to Catholicism and then became more Catholic than anyone else. Uh, um, you've got to laugh, don't you? You do. Your nanny, Kura, was a writer. Yeah. I didn't really clock that for a long time because I think, I don't know, I was so nervous about having any kind of ambition to be a writer myself that I didn't, I didn't even think that, you know, it was one of those dreams that was so precious that I didn't ever talk about it or think about it or make any kind of effort towards it. And so I didn't really even think about, oh, maybe this is like a puppet that I have. And I knew that she was a writer. We had the, you know, the school journal readers uh, that she'd had pieces published in Te and English and when I was growing up. But yeah, it wasn't actually until I think someone who works for Itangata got in touch with me and said, oh, I used to work with your grandmother and, um, you know, she was a writer as well. And I was like, Oh shit, she was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there is this sort of family history of storytelling. And I found it really interesting that in the book you talk about storytelling as medicine. And then I was thinking about, you know, in Western medicine or Pakeha medicine, that whole concept of a, a history when we go to the doctor. And it kind of requires patients to be as concise and brief as possible. Don't take up too much time and just say, it hurts here. It's an eight out of ten, and I've had it for a week, kind of kind of thing. But um, when you were when you did your GP placement um, at the Maori Health Provider in Carmore, Kiara Natiwai, you found that they had half hour consultations. Patients were were really encouraged to fuck a tanga, you know, to make connections, and it sounds as though it was really really effective. Yes, so deliciously. Um profound and you could get completely caught up in this notion because it intersects with medicine in so many different ways so many um, amazing doctor writers have gone down this path and I think you know and the caveat I would make and I think I was a, maybe a little bit harsh in the book on this is that as doctors we can get really caught up in our own sort of profound wisdom and so um, <laughs> you can get a bit carried away with this kind of oh, storytelling all the thing but you do actually have to get to the point you know you do have to find a diagnosis and come up with a treatment plan and manage this thing but that aside in the right setting um, absolutely so Kia ora Wai was was perfect for that and that you know because a GP in a community like that in a small area is not just giving out prescriptions for paracetamol or whatever, you know, it's helping people with work and income, it's um, facilitating connections with housing providers, it's helping someone who's uh, just come out of prison and and needs to be put on medications they haven't been on for years or whatever, you know, like there's, there's so many complexities and you're not going to get that if you 
just say what's brought you to the doctor today. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially, especially with our people. I mean, we, you know, I've done a, a bit of qualitative research, which has involved interviewing Māori for various kaupapa, but the, you know, the overwhelming feedback is, you know, it is how you ask the question and you can't always get away with asking the question in the same way with our, with our people. Um, having said that, I mean, you know, I work in a surgical specialty and so we don't have half an hour with each patient and often don't have the ability to have that. And I do, I do still, the thing I like about surgery is that you can do, I think you can do that whaka whanaungatanga and get to the point quickly. Mm, <laughs> I don't think mm. it needs to necessarily be, you know, incredibly drawn out. And, it, and it's just about having a really good understanding of what's happening between you and the person on the other side and, and what's important to them. It's interesting to me too that, um, you know, we talk about whakawhanaungatanga and it's just telling someone a little bit about yourself so that they feel comfortable telling you some incredibly intimate things about themselves. I have still talked to consultants, you know, senior medical professionals who just really resist it. So it's frustrating, but it's also fascinating to me, you know, um, I had one surgeon, not in my department, but a department that should remain unnamed, who said, oh, no, you know, I'm just not comfortable. That's just not how I practice. And it's kind of like he thought that he needed to hand over his credit card details and address, you know, like it's something as simple as, you know, oh, I see you're wearing a Warriors jersey. Like, did you watch the game on the weekend? You know, like it, I think people overcomplicated it. And that's, that's that tradition of medicine of being really austere and your interaction with people has to be clipped and professional and objective. Um, but we know people don't tell us what we need to know if mm. you approach things that way. Yes, if you that sort of doctors as God kind of concept. Yeah, and also it doesn't work because because if you have that relationship and then you tell someone what to do, they're actually not going to do what you tell them to do because one, they probably haven't understood what you've said and two, they don't respect you because the gulf is so wide. Yeah, oh, interesting. Now, you've said that you hope to see the number of Māori doctors increase to at least be proportional to the population of Māori. In 2023, it looks as though 4% of doctors are Māori, but that should really be about 18% by now, isn't it? So we're sort of running behind. Do you think we will eventually reach proportionality? You think about how long it takes to train a doctor. So most, most specialists from the start of med school to graduating or you know, getting their specialist exams is about 14 years. Mm. And so that's the lag time. And so the Māori doctors that we're training this year, you know, that's 14 years before we get them as SMOs into whatever professions. And so to have a truly representative workforce, you need to increase the numbers coming through dramatically. And you can only do that by shifting the percentages that come in. And we've, we see how difficult that is. So every couple of years, every year, it seems lately, you get pushed back on that. And I would expect that to increase. So it might sound paradoxical to say this, but even though we have this um, incredible uh, resurgence in Te Reo Māori and, you know, we have Matariki, which, you know, first national holiday last year and this incredible generosity from our, our knowledge holders and sharing that with the country. So there's all of these beautiful things that represent the progress that we have in this country, but that corners people who are resisting it. And so that goes some way to explaining why progress is limited and why all of us have to be vigilant because <laughs> you think you've made progress and you think this is great. So, I mean, for us, we with the prioritisation and particularly around surgical wait lists, this was a policy that was introduced in 2020. And so, mm. and you know, there's so much work that had happened behind the scenes that the College of Surgeons who, which, you know, is not an institution that's always done well in terms of recognising that equity is an issue. But, you know, there are significant gains that have been made from, you know, leaders in, in that um, college and all of the other specialist colleges to get this happening. 
And so in 2020, and we're kind of like, great, this is this is coming, and we're doing it in different areas. And then it's 2023, and some idiot in the Herald decides to make it about you know Maori privilege again, and and we're back at square one, and we have a, a potentially incoming prime minister saying they're going to get rid of that, and and the whole debate has to start again. And you know, all of our leaders, you just think, God, you must be so exhausted having to fight the same fight every time. So that sounds quite depressing. Sorry, yes, but I yeah. do. I mean, I am, I am, I am generally optimistic though, because I think you might be moving forward and then falling back. But but every time you move forward, you get a little bit more ground. Yes, um, because you know they s- sort of say success breeds success, but then of course it does breed pushback too, doesn't it? And yeah, and one of my favourite quotes, and I wish I knew who'd said it because I say it all the time, but it's for the privileged, um, equality feels like oppression. And so you see this insistence on of victimhood by people that actually were never going to be dispossessed of anything. One other concept that I was really struck by an anecdote in the, in the book, and this is about poverty. You were on a course, and the course leader talked about how people might often say, "Oh, look, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and we had nothing; we were poor." But that teacher said that that's kind of old school hardship is actually nothing compared to the poverty that we're seeing in, in 2021 and, and beyond. And and I loved how you said that most people who start poor and stay poor don't get to share their stories. But there's a number of um, exciting writers that, that are talking about often their own poverty in a realistic but kind of unromanticised way. And you talk about Talia Marshall Dominic Hoey and so she, she's, so Talia I think has a book coming out so I would highly recommend I haven't read any of it yet but it'll be amazing but yeah I think and that, that's something you know I can't ask others to be conscious of their privilege if I'm not conscious of mine and so I'm very fortunate to be in a job that's unlikely to be obsoleted and huh. as long as I don't say too many outrageous things I'm not likely uh, yeah. to lose my job you know and so that day-to-day fear of can you pay the bills um, particularly in 2023 where the job instability in addition to the general kind of zombie apocalypse vibe, it's different um, and we have to acknowledge that and also not be, you know, not become complicit just because you think you've come from this background and you represent this particular group that means anything when you've got a nice life and warm, dry home and the Mm. bills are being paid. So, yeah, it's just that constant kind of interrogation of yourself, you know. Yeah, uh, I guess an honesty with yourself and you've got to keep thinking about it and talking about it. Yeah. Now, let's talk about you being a super, superhuman. Um, I kind of wonder how you fit everything in your day because you've got medicine, you know, with its long shifts, night shifts, etc. You've got parenthood, writing, life, just general life administration. And each one of these on its own is, is massive. Just wonder how, how you do it or how you take care of yourself. So that's very interesting. So like every single interview that I've done has asked me that question. It's interesting because I've gone from having quite glib answers um, when I first started doing interviews to thinking, oh, no, this is this is probably a problem. And to, I had a, um, an interview for Stuff. The, the whole concept was wellbeing. And Rebecca Wadey, who does the interviews, asked some really probing questions. And well, actually, it's probably better to be honest and say that it's not a good balance. I kind of just get a bit, you know, deflect if people say something like, oh, you're superwoman, you can do all these things. And the reality is that you actually can't, you know, like there are lots of things that have fallen by the wayside and it is a struggle to do everything. So 
um, I probably haven't got it right. And mm. I think medicine is good and bad for that. I think it's such a demanding and all-consuming career. And I've got some big kind of milestone, milestone things to do in the next year or so that I've had to let go of a few other things and be intentional about that and think, okay, this is this is what I'm doing now and be you know really clear with myself about what I say yes to, how much time it's going to take and and what the opportunity cost of that is, you know. Yeah, so no, I actually don't have a good answer to that. And I think I would say don't follow my lead. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it's something, so so every Māori woman I know has has this portfolio of things that you have to do in your day. So it's your day job, your governance, often, you know, iwi boards and things like that, and things that aren't paid for, children, multiple children if you also have a husband to deal with as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, I have dealt with it, but I, I wouldn't say that, I, that, that I'm a, a role model in that respect. Mm. Oh, thank you. That I think it's a really awesome answer. Now, we're nearly running out of time, but I did want to ask you about when you were a kid, you read a lot. You talk about reading, having books all the time. I was going to say, is there a book that you remember as being formative or, or having an influence on you? So pleased you asked, and I'm going to talk about a few. But first of all, because I was an only child, I read everything. So literally anything yeah. that was in the house, I would read and always max out You know the books you got from the library and all that sort of thing. But the pivotal one for me was, I think it must have been my, it was either my seventh or eighth birthday, and I'd ask mum for a Babysitter's Club book. Oh, I wondered if you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I was really pissed off because she got me a Tamora Pierce book, and it was the first book in the Alana series. So it was, you know, about the, the girl who disguised herself to become a knight. And so I was annoyed that she hadn't gotten me the book that I wanted, but I thought because there was nothing else to read that I would read uh. this. And then, you know, I absolutely loved it and then hoovered up all of her other books and then found a way into other similar writers. So like Cheryl Jordan, who wrote The Juniper Game, who I only realised this week that she was a New Zealand writer. But the the thing about the Tamora Pierce books that I think, you know, reflecting back in that kind of weird, you know, history as a a circle thing is that it was was so subversive. It was so feminist. And I didn't even realise because the writing was so good. And I think that's what I love about writing and storytelling is that it's magic, it's potential kind of alchemy to turn, you know, something over here into something else. It's definitely that book. I, I remember that. I have quite a bad memory, but I remember that moment really clearly. Yeah. And what a serendipitous sort of way of discovering that writer as well. Totally. Yeah. And because mum, you know, she had that whole sort of second wave feminism thing, you know, where the, the house was covered in, you know, lesbian and feminist paraphernalia. <laughs> and so it, all of which was just wallpaper to me. But, but to deliver it in this form, you know, it just got under my skin and became, you know, part of my value system. So, you know, that's, that's one for mum. Go, Colleen. Oh, look, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, this is, I think, is probably a, a perfect moment to end this interview. Congratulations once again on the book, Emma. There's a cure for this. It, I just feel it's a must read for anyone who cares about humanity and healthcare in New Zealand and also anyone who enjoys a good yarn. <laughs> so I really hope you keep writing and speaking truth to power. Oh, thank you. All the best, Emma. And I can't wait to see what you produce next. So thanks once again for being here. And to our listeners, Harera Kakite Ano. This program was brought to you by Auckland Council Libraries. Nga Pataka Koreru, Otamaki Makoru. Find us at AucklandLibraries.govt.nz. Contact us by sending an email to reading at AucklandCouncil.govt.nz.